Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to Polygamer episode number 81 for Wednesday, September 26th, 2018. I'm your host, Ken Gagney, and on this show, I have interviewed a variety of film directors, film actors, people who are looking at aspects of gaming and diversity. And today, I am excited to be talking to the director and producer of the latest such film, that being Netizens. Hello to Cynthia Lowen. Hi, Ken. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for giving us your time. I know that you're calling in all the way from Switzerland. Is that correct? It is correct. All the way from Zurich. We're going to be in the Zurich Film Festival here shortly. Oh, my goodness. And this is just one of the many stops you've been making lately. You've been on the road for a while now. Yeah, it's been a really interesting, fun few weeks. We were just in Moscow and St. Petersburg for screenings along with talks with women's rights advocates and NGOs and a lot of young people over there who are really affected by the issue. And so I think, you know, going to Russia and then from there, we're actually in Oslo and now here in Zurich, I think the universality of online harassment being something that's, you know, this really borderless issue that transcends so many different, you know, nationalities, cultures, geographies, class, where we all happen to be on the planet, who we all happen to be. Um, it's been exciting to see it being embraced as like a human rights issue. Oh, that's very encouraging. Now, I got to see Netizens not by going to the film festival, but by streaming it because I was one of your Kickstarter backers. But most people have not gotten to see your film yet. For so, so for those who are looking forward to it, can you give us an idea of what it's all about? Yeah, Totally. So Netizens follows three women who are all impacted in really different ways by online harassment. And for each of them, I think the thing that I was so struck by for their stories was that the harassment was something that had happened and their lives were totally transformed by it. And for all of them in these ways that they took these experiences and channeled them in super constructive ways to make a difference in the larger sense. Um, so one of the women at the center of the film is Anita Sarkeesian. And following her harassment, she's really continued to speak out about um, women and girls' leadership. Over the course of the film, she did a series that was a new web series for her about women who were written out of history going back thousands of years, uh, and then ending with a series that she was doing more recently on, um, on race and inequality and media in America. Uh, one of the other women is Carrie Goldberg, and she herself had been targeted and wasn't able to get much assistance from law enforcement or from lawyers. And she was a lawyer at the time and decided that she would totally change her practice from working in elder law to opening this kind of cutting edge internet privacy sexual assault law firm. And she's now risen to have this amazing firm and is representing several women in cases against Harvey Weinstein. So her trajectory over our time filming was also really inspiring and, you know, just sort of this crazy trip. And then Tina Riney uh, is the third woman who's, who's featured in the film. And she 
is a Columbia Business School graduate, had a very successful career in finance and commodities trading. And she had an ex-partner create numerous websites about her with really damaging, reputation-harming material that totally derailed her career. And so the film follows is she kind of really takes ownership of her own personal story and her own history and really speaks out about the fact of, you know, how information and our own private backgrounds can be used to harm us in really creative, detrimental ways. But she's really committed to, I think, in a more personal way, telling her own story and taking ownership over her narrative. These were, for me, mostly news stories. I had never heard of Carrie Goldberg or Tina before. And so coming to know them through your film was very educational. Anita Sarkeesian, of course, Polygamer is a podcast about gaming. So her name has come up before. And it sounds like she may have been your inspiration to make this film in the first place. Yeah, I have this very clear memory in the fall of 2014 of getting ready for work. And at the time, you know, Bully, my previous film, had kind of wrapped up and, you know, the sort of work with that was kind of coming to an end. And I was like, what's the next thing going to be? You know, and I've been hearing quite a bit about women being harassed online and people were always like, oh, you should make a film about cyberbullying. And I was like, no, I'm totally done with bullying. I'm going to do something totally different. And I remember, you know, it was raining out and I was tying on my sneakers one day, getting ready to leave my apartment and go to work. And I heard on NPR the story about Anita and how she was targeted and had been forced to leave her home due to threats for her personal safety. And I was just like, what is going on? This is like total madness. And I remember at that moment kind of having that having that realization of like, this is the next film I want to make. So although I didn't set out to, you know, I, I would never call netizens a film about cyberbullying because I think that it's really, you know, much more digital abuse. But kind of tangentially, I think the project really ties back to this earlier work of bully. Um, but it was certainly hearing Anita's story around the time there were so many other stories kind of bubbling up about women being targeted that that was kind of the clincher of like, all right, I'm gonna, I think this is it. I think this is the next film. I'm gonna start on this road. But unlike some other films that also feature Anita Sarkeesian, you chose not to focus specifically on gaming. Why was that? I felt like what, what I saw in her situation to me spoke much more broadly not just to what's happening to women in gaming, but I think women across many different industries and across a lot of different professions and fields and women who use the internet as such a critical part of their work and getting their voices out there and, you know, the internet being this, this tool that we all often get to, you know, really enjoy and benefit from in terms of our work and building audiences so I wanted to explore her story, not necessarily through the framework of the gaming community, but I think through a framework of, you know, these really deep things that are going on in our culture that have revealed gender discrimination and inequality that transcends a lot of different areas of our lives. The other thing that I wanted to challenge is that often 
what I felt like I was hearing was, was kind of this attitude of like, oh, well, it's just the gaming industry or minimizing what was happening because it was, it was seen as like, oh, it's just, you know, boys being boys or, or it's quote, just the gaming industry or in some way that this is like endemic to the gaming community. And, you know, I, I wanted to, to, challenge that idea that it's quote just gaming or that this is something normal within the gaming industry and that way of framing it that that kind of minimized it to just kind of all being a game when you know the women being targeted it's not just quote gamers it's professional women who work in a very you know established you know deeply well funded huge professional industry and that's something that, you know, I felt like was sort of missing in, in that framework. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. I, I think gaming is one place where harassment is perhaps most virulent or most obvious, but it's just an example of the sort of behavior that we're seeing throughout society, especially in the last two years since the presidential election. Yeah, you know, and I also feel like there was this maybe response from law enforcement or part of the way that law enforcement failed to respond was tied into this idea that it's, quote, just the gaming industry. It's just kids. You know, it's just an extension of their games when it's it's not a game. Um, and it's very much, you know, very real in in the world that we all inhabit online and offline. I felt like maybe you know, that was the most effective way for the film to talk about what was happening with her. Now, you mentioned that your last film was Bully, and this film, Netizens, is not about so-called online bullying. I had a previous guest on this show who made a distinction between bullying and harassment. Is that a distinction that you make as well? That's a good question. Um, I guess what I would say is that I see harassment being something that suggests very deep structural systemic um, kind of foundations for the behavior. And I think bullying often is more of like a one-on-one power dynamic or a power dynamic between a group and a single singular person. But, you know, when we talk about harassment, often we think about things like sexual harassment in the workplace and I do think that that language and that framework is helpful in thinking about it because when we think about sexual harassment in the workplace, that's something that now has become a civil rights violation. And there are systems in place to deal with those kinds of behaviors that fall into this category of uh, you know, behaviors that are not permitted by our civil rights laws. So often the roadmap for how we deal with online harassment and as it affects people in their workplaces, in their places of education, one of the books that I was really heavily influenced by in making the film and thinking about the issue was Hate Crimes in Cyberspace by Danielle Keats-Citron. And what she posits is this way of thinking about online harassment that targets women 
on the basis of their of their gender, very gender specific harassment, is looking at how we confronted gender specific harassment in the workplace in the 1970s and created a, a roadmap for how to deal with that. So we do have laws against sexual harassment and we have the Me Too movement. We have more and more people who are willing to speak up against their assailants, such as Brett Kavanaugh being an assailant, mm-hmm. allegedly. In the film, though, when Anita Sarkeesian was asked, in light of all these things, things are getting better, right? She says, no, they're not. And that was, you know, for somebody who might have their head in the sand or who is looking at only the progress, that might come as a bit of a surprise or a disappointment. Are things really not getting better? I think that's a good question. I mean, I think that one of the things that has emerged out of Me Too is the power of women's voices online to make something that has been ubiquitous, yet also often kind of invisible or underneath the radar and make it visible um, in this very simple way. And just by virtue of the sheer volume of women who, you know, in many cases were just simply saying me too. So I think something in our culture has really started to become visible. And I think the prevalence and, um, you know, the, just the prevalence of these experiences of either, you know, sexual assault or um, discrimination or feeling, you know, under threat as a woman is an experience that so many women share. So I think that that has has certainly created a shift in our culture. I don't know if it necessarily means it's happening less. I I hope it's happening less. But I do think that, you know, it's like the 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 first the first step to like getting help is admitting you have a problem. Um, you know, we can't we can't pretend we don't have a problem with gender discrimination in our culture anymore or with sexual assault in our culture. We we have a problem, like me too and so many of the women who have been courageously speaking up about their experiences have now helped us make that problem visible in a way that I don't think we can turn the clock back anymore and and sort of unsee and unhear what has has emerged in the past year or so. So I, I do think that that is a really strong foundation for what I hope will become much deeper institutional cultural change. You know, that said, while I think that there's been progress in terms of the visibility of women's experiences of sexual assault and gender discrimination increasing, you still hear that Christine Blasey Ford, who is potentially going to be testifying in regards to Brett Kavanaugh's sexually assaulting her, she now is in hiding from what I understand and has had to leave her home because of death threats and threats on her life and threats on her family's life. And I could be pretty positive that most of those are coming through the internet. It's still a really tough choice to make, I think, for any woman who wants to speak out about their experiences. And I think the the fact that there's a good chance they may be targeted when they do so continues to be a real problem. I'm reminded of one of my first guests on this show, Dwayne DeFore, who worked in the Violence Prevention and Response, VPR 
department of MIT. I was speaking with one of his colleagues who said that the number of women reporting being raped in college is increasing. And I thought that was a bad thing. And she had to put it in context for why it was actually a good thing. She wasn't saying the number of women being raped was increasing. She was saying the number of women who were reporting being raped was increasing because more women feel confident in coming forward and acknowledging that this has happened and taking steps to accuse their assailants and make sure it doesn't happen again. And that is a good thing. And it sounds like that's what you're seeing as well. Yeah. You know, and it's also interesting because that's what happened when, when we were working on bullying in schools was that schools would often do all this great work. They would, um, they would educate their staff, they would educate their students, they'd educate their bus drivers and counselors about bullying and know how to recognize it and understand what it is. And there's now a reporting mechanism. And, you know, these schools would would do all this work that was really positive for the school community. And then suddenly they'd be like, ah, we're getting like all of these reports of bullying. Like, what have we done? It's like, like this great program we did just made it all worse. And, and, it's, and you know, the same thing. No, it's not worse. It's just that people's attitudes and understanding and education and comfort in speaking up has changed. And I think another thing that is changing is, is our ideas of what's normal. For a long time, you know, bullying was a normal part of adolescence and school. For a long time, sexual discrimination and harassment was a, quote, normal part of the workplace. For a long time, getting threats online was a normal part of being a person on the internet. And I think that those attitudes are really changing. And that was partially one of my my greatest hopes for this film was that we could challenge the ideas of what we consider and accept to be normal in our online communities. Can you tell me something that you learned in the course of making this film about the subject you were researching? I learned a lot in the the process of making this film. The things that I think I was most surprised by, but perhaps I shouldn't be at all. And I guess in retrospect, it's, it isn't surprising at all. But I think the thing that, that I was surprised by were the stories of domestic violence and intimate partner violence that had gone digital. And by the time I finished making the film, I really felt like you cannot even begin to talk about women and online harassment without talking about intimate partner violence. It was by and large the the experience of the women who I filmed with, that the perpetrator was someone with whom they had at one time been romantically involved or someone who they had declined to become romantically involved with. So that that was not necessarily what I was expecting to find or what I was expecting to make the film about. When I, as I mentioned, you know, when I when I started the film, I was really hearing about these stories of of women who were being targeted by these coordinated online mobs. And by and large, the perpetrators were not personally known to the women being targeted, or they were you know, anonymous or, you know, they, they weren't overlapping a ton offline, but, you know, 
what I, what I, so I thought the film was going to be much more about women being targeted by these coordinated and online mobs. But what I discovered was just, just so many women who are targeted by, by, by former or current partners. The internet has become a really great way to intimidate and shame and keep a woman in an abusive relationship through, you know, threats of destroying her career or exposing intimate pictures or by stalking her. I mean, the, the, the stalking tools available to domestic abusers are, are, you know, pretty sophisticated these days. So it has given an incredible kind of weapon to people who are domestic abusers. And it's the same kind of system of power and control that has been, you know, sort of the the core of these things for, for decades, but the internet has has just given given abusers so many more resources at their disposal, unfortunately. And the other thing that was that I wasn't expecting to get into you know, and, and is also something you can't really talk about online harassment without talking about this, is free speech. I didn't expect things like non-consensual pornography, which is also sometimes called revenge porn or, you know, image exploitation. I didn't expect that to overlap with free speech. I didn't expect for there to be this explosion on university campuses across the country about this conflict between threats and racism and misogyny that is going on underground on the online channels at campuses, which is bubbling up into students feeling like they do not have safe learning environments. And this conflict between, you know, our, our civil rights and our, our cultural social guarantees to be able to access education and the flip side, which is, you know, is it free speech to, you know, issue threats that make someone feel unsafe in their learning environment? Um, so, so many of the issues at the center of the film, you kind of start pulling them out and, and it's really complicated. You know, of course, over over the making of the film, other things that have happened that have been really surprising and that certainly shape how we think about the internet, how we think about privacy, you know, or all the all the fake Facebook and Twitter accounts that were created in the run up to the election, a lot of the privacy violations that took place with Cambridge Analytica. Our lives and our culture are just so online and so on these platforms. So the one good thing I would say is that at the beginning of the film, I think there was this sort of attitude that like, oh, we have our online life and we have our offline life. And whatever happens online, it's just online, you know, just turn your computer off, walk away. It's not a real death threat. It's just an online threat. I think that our attitude about that has started to change. Certainly when you start to wonder, all right, well, you know, do we have the president we have because of um, cyber interference? Those attitudes, I think, are changing. In the scene where Tina is speaking at Toastmasters and a young man comes up to him afterward and says, hey, if people are saying mean things about you on the internet, just ignore them. You know, you should have a strong enough ego that their insults don't get to you. And 
that person doesn't really seem to understand the ramifications of these things where she goes to apply for a job and she's offered the job, but then the employer Google searches her finds these things about her and just drops the job offer completely. That's not something you can just ignore and walk away from. Yeah, totally. That guy, you know, I'm like, oh, um, you know, I, I think probably in his heart, he, he thought he was being helpful. Um, but, you know, I, sometimes we would joke that like, I don't know, whenever your, whenever your sentence starts out, it may be just because I'm a guy, but it's like, just take pause. Think, think hard. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he forges ahead and, and exactly, you know, tells her that, that the online harassment she's experiencing is, is basically all in her head and it, it's only as big as she makes of it. So, yeah, you know, whether or not Tina is online and every day or, you know, is, is, Googling herself to see how many websites have popped up that are intended to deprive her of the opportunity to get a job, you know, she maybe may have turned her computer off and not be looking at it. But certainly the employers who she's trying to get a job with are looking at it. And, you know, in the case of not just getting job offers rescinded, but what happens later in the film is that it becomes a total liability for her to be able to keep a job and to do her job ethically because she ends up discovering some fraud taking place at the financial institution that she was working at. And when she reported the fraud to the higher ups, some of whom were implicated, they terminated her. And then threatened that if she were to pursue a case to challenge why she had been terminated, there's all this stuff online about her and who's going to take her side anyway, because it's out there. And it was just such a threat, you know, like, we're wrongfully going to fire you, but don't try and bring a suit against us because look at all this crap that's on the internet about you. Who's going to side with you? So it really destabilized and jeopardized her ability to have employment. And then even when she got the job to keep it, if anything happened in that workplace that she felt like she needed to speak up about. One of the things that she mentions in this film, which I found very illuminating, was that gossip and rumors and even maybe hate mongering are not new to the internet. They've been around forever. But what the internet does is it changes the context. Previously, if somebody in your town or your community gossiped about you, the people hearing those rumors would know who they were talking about and would have some basis by which to judge whether or not the rumor was true. Whereas when it's online, it's no longer localized. It has no context and there's no reason not to believe what somebody is saying about you. Right. Well, I think that this is the new era that we live in, in which our digital footprint is a precious commodity. And for each of us, what comes up when you Google us in a search engine is absolutely critical to our prospects, to you know our ability to get a job, to our ability to get a date, to our ability to get into the school that we want to be in. You know, it's like a real asset 
to have a digital footprint in a search engine that you feel accurately reflects you and is an asset for you in your life as you're trying to accomplish the things you want to accomplish. But it is so easy to damage that for someone. It's incredibly easy to vandalize someone's digital footprint. And it happens all the time. And it's really tough territory to figure out how to deal with that. Because on the flip side, we do not have the right to be forgotten in America. And I don't think we ever will. We really, um, and rightfully so, protect our citizens' ability to to speak, use speech, use expression. You know, that is something that is really precious and unique about Americans. So I think the concerns about how to address what people are allowed to post or make make websites about, you know, all those things. That's really tricky how to deal with that because it totally gets into free speech and expression and it's so sacred to us as Americans. But I think on the flip side, what we can do is be really more proactive about educating employers and universities and even just the average citizen who you might, you know, want to go on a date with to recognize when somebody's digital footprint is a sign of abuse and to figure out how we can ethically process these search engine results, which have become in essence kind of a a DIY background check that all of these companies and educational institutions are conducting and yet have no guidelines on how to process those or how to weight them in comparison with all the other great qualities we may be bringing to the table. And that's, I think, some work that really needs to be done. Now, this is a film about gendered harassment, and you feature three women who have experienced that for themselves. And you also interview several other people who are on the periphery who who have either witnessed it or are working to fix it. Harassment, though, is primarily a man-made problem, and I'm hopeful that that being the case, men can also participate in fixing the problem. But uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think any men were in this film at all. Is that correct? There is. There is. We have – he was a former federal prosecutor, Wesley Shu, who is in the film. And I did interview other men who were wonderful – Daniel Solov, who is at George Washington University, who's written several great books about the internet and privacy and harassment and how to navigate these areas and what kinds of laws or policy could be um, applied. And um, of course, Wesley Shu has been very instrumental. He's now a judge, but when he was a prosecutor in California, um, he prosecuted several very major cybercrime cases. You know, men are certainly part of the solution. And men, by and large, make up around 50%, you know, give or take, some communities more, some communities less. But men make up a really big part of our digital communities. And my hope for the film 
even though there's primarily women's voices by and large in the film, my hope for the film is that it can also be a roadmap for men to see themselves as allies and as people who are instrumental in speaking up when they see it happening and being bystanders who are not just passively witnessing, but, but being, you know, in the sort of bullying language, being upstanders and taking what they know to be happening and perhaps taking some of the safety they may have because they are men and being able to use that to their advantage in speaking up about what they want their online communities to look like and how they want people to be treated in their online communities. So many of the men who've seen this film, who have been at our festival screenings or have seen the film online, have been so supportive of this work and want to do more. And I think are a huge part of making these digital communities better for everyone. So I certainly don't want men to feel like they're not, um, they're not included. And I'll also say, I think it's really tough being a man right now. Like, I, I think that there is a lot of fear and anger and anxiety about, you know, are we, are we losing something? Are we saying the right thing? Are we, are we always like wrong or like messing up somehow? Or like, ah, like there's so much to keep track of. Like, I feel like I'm always being, you know, called for, for having done something wrong or said something wrong. And, and I'm just trying to like figure it out too. And I think that that's, that's like real. And, and that confusion and discomfort and, and anxiety is a real part of the conversation that I think is worth exploring. Absolutely. I mean, and of course, in many ways, as John Scalzi has put it, being a straight white cisgendered man is like playing a video game on the easy setting. But on the other hand, change is very hard. And I think we are at a point in our society where the change that needs to happen needs to be with men. Totally. Totally. And, and I think that on the flip side, I think, I think men right now often perhaps feel like, well, the best thing I can do is just like shut up and, and stay out of the way. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to put myself forward because I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And, and, you know, it's okay. It's okay to like not get it right all the time. Um, but I think, I think trying and, and wanting to, learn more and get it right is like really important. So, I mean, life is tough for everyone. It really is, you know, for life is not easy. There's no roadmap for anyone, no matter who you are. And I, you know, really invite men to, to be part of this. Now, another potential contributor to the solution, I hope, will be video games. And this is not a film about video games, but it's impossible not to talk about them when Anir Sarkeesian is involved. And this is a podcast about gaming. The film opened with Kerry Goldberg relating a specific incident where a high schooler 
was assaulted and there was a film of the assault that was passed around in the school and the educators did nothing to stop its distribution or to punish the people who were distributing it. And that particular scenario was replicated in the video game Life is Strange. That's where I first saw something like that happening. And I'm hopeful that that is an opportunity for players to develop some empathy for that kind of scenario. Can gaming in other ways contribute to fixing this problem of online harassment? So I think that's really interesting what you're saying is that this was a scenario that you have witnessed being played out in a video game because the situation between these two kids and they really were kids. They weren't even high school students. They were both 13 years old is so alarming. And, you know, I always ask myself kind of every time I, you know, obviously I've seen the film a fair amount of times. I've seen the scene a lot. Um, I always ask myself, you know, where did this 13 year old boy get this idea to film this assault that he was perpetrating. I don't have an answer for that. Um, and I certainly, you know, I, th- I think the answer is, is complicated. But I do think that our media and the kinds of stories that we engage in are really important. And I'm not a gamer. Um, but I, I am a storyteller. And I think that where I connect most to video games is that they are this really kind of magical opportunity to enter a story and to be the protagonist or be the antagonist or be, you know, so many, so many different things. It's just this world where our imaginations are totally, you know, it's like cracked open imagination and possibility and who and what we can be. And I think it's important that the stories that we tell in those spaces are, are diverse and compelling and you know, I, I don't know if there's there's like a recipe for for how stories can make our world a better place. But I think the more people and the more experiences we're exposed to, the the greater our understanding of the world becomes. So that I think is is what's really important is is the opportunity to have really diverse experiences that are that are meaningful and video games are just such a great way to open that door but from my understanding of a lot of the games that are out there i'm sure and again i'm i'm hesitant to say anything that assumes anything <laughs> because i this is not my arena Games are not my my arena or my sort of area of expertise. So it's entirely possible that I'm saying things that are way off the mark and hopefully I won't be terribly bullied online for it. I think that there's just this limitless possibility in the kinds of stories we can tell. And 
that the more compelling and engaging and and creative and imaginative those stories are and and the creators are which i kind of gets back to the the name of the podcast i think the greater opportunity there is for for understanding and collaboration and communication it can be challenging to address these difficult subjects in gaming especially when so few games have tried it there's no precedent there's no as you said roadmap and even in life is strange there have been missteps with that character who was assaulted, filmed, and then bullied later on the game. She tries to commit suicide and you, it's a win-lose scenario where you have the opportunity to talk her off the ledge, literally. Mm. And, you know, for some people who have been in that scenario in their lives, that is quite the triggering scene. And it's just, it's challenging to gamify something like that while focusing on the empathy as opposed to a score? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great sort of question or like side, you know, tangential point is like, how do we think about winning and losing differently? What does that mean? What, like, what's a score? It could be anything, you know, it's it's a total abstraction that we, we make up. Um, I think there's a lot of sort of fun to be had with what, success means in these spaces. Right. Especially when it comes to making video games that don't consist of blowing things up. Right. Exactly. Again, this is where my, my, like, I want to be just so out front about my, I don't know if naivete is quite the right word, but maybe lack of knowledge uh, or expertise in video games. But it does seem like there's a lot of blowing things up maybe like maybe shifting to like just more kind of wild crazy imaginative things it's like there's just so much potential there absolutely is uh we have a few minutes left i want to talk to you a little bit about crowdfunding because as i mentioned at the top of the show this film was partially funded through kickstarter now anita sarkeesian of course also had a kickstarter and after it had met its minimum goal is when it started attracting a lot of detractors, and we all know how that went. Did you have any negative experiences with your Kickstarter? We didn't really. I would the Kickstarter was was really positive. There were a few comments, um, but usually what those comments were were a misunderstanding about the film and who was making it. So the negative stuff tended to be along the lines of, Oh, another Anita's making another film or like, you know, in some way attacking her and, you know, the people who go after her tend to kind of also go after the things associated or about her. So um, we did get some stuff that was sort of targeting, targeting her, but, it was not a lot. And by and large, the response was really positive. Oh, good. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. We, that's not something you often hear in this case. Yeah, yeah. It was, really, it was really positive. It was really constructive. And of course, when we launched it, it was a concern for sure. We didn't know. You never really know until you put something out there. What's it going to be? What's the response going to be? You know, hopefully my team is safe and I'm safe and people are excited and, and 
you know, here we go. (laughs) Hope it goes well. And it did. So that was really, it was really nice. It was really nice. And that kind of positivity has continued as the film has premiered at Tribeca this April. And then um, we screened in Hot Docs in Toronto. And, you know, our, our international premiere in Toronto, it was like a huge, you know, 600 person packed theater. And on the way there, all the flags were at half mast, because the massacre of several people by a young man who had last posted negative stuff about women on his social media before he, you know, got in a car and went out into Toronto and and ran several people down. Um, That had just happened days before the screening. So it was kind of this perfect example of the extent to which these threats need to be taken seriously. And these young men who are expressing this rage, really, it really needs to be addressed. It's not just quote on the internet, it can and often does result in offline acts of violence. So, but both, you know, at, at, at Tribeca, at Hot Docs, and then of course, as, as we've continued to get out there with the film, the response has been really positive. It's been really nice from both men and women. And when you show your film in other regions, like you mentioned, you were just in Moscow, is the film subtitled for those languages? Yeah. Yeah. So we now have subtitles for Russian. We will have them in German for Zurich, uh, Spanish. Um, When we were in Norway, so many people spoke English that they didn't subtitle the film, but our subtitle list will, will be growing. And I will say the other thing that was so awesome in Russia, but, but abroad everywhere is just people really get it. It's like, it's happening everywhere. It really is. And we may talk about it differently or the kind of focus on tech companies versus law enforcement maybe maybe different from place to place but it's it's a totally universal issue and really hearing people outside of the United States talk about it as just this total universal human rights problem that we're faced with right now as a globe has been so encouraging and i love what your film is doing to bring attention to that the more people who see it the more understanding there will be i it seems like the it seems like being on the festival circuit, though, is limiting when you're able to distribute the film publicly. When can we expect to get our hands on it? As soon as possible. <laughs> I can't say too much more. We're working on it. We're working on our. Um, we're working very diligently on our North American wide distribution, and of course, in making it available around the world. So, as soon as we can, I will say that for educational institutions and communities who want to schedule a community screening, we are making the film available to educators and communities right now. So if anyone wants to 
bring the film to their school, bring it to their community, they can visit our website and we would be delighted to help facilitate that. Oh, that's wonderful. And can you remind us where that website can be found? Yes, it is www.netizensfilm.com. And if they want to follow the film or you on social media, are there any links you'd like to share? Yep. We're just on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at netizensfilm. One word. Fantastic. And I'll include links to all those in this episode's show notes found at polygamer.net. Cynthia, are there any closing remarks you wish to share with our listeners? So Ken, I wanted to thank you and Polygamer so much for having me. And I want to thank the community for listening. And I hope you'll stay in touch. And I think that there is so much great constructive work happening in the gaming community. And I think that it takes a lot of courage, but I am in total admiration of the people who are doing this work and really pushing for a really constructive, diverse, creative community in gaming. Well, you are one of those people, and I really admire and appreciate you and your film, so thank you. Awesome! This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Thank you.